0: Welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week, we are looking at the theme of personhood in The Lord of the Rings, and maybe The Hobbit as well. And actually, this is going to be our final episode discussing Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, at least for now. We've gotten to the end of our list of themes to look at the series through. And so, yeah, we are going to conclude here, but also as more content is being made (laughs) and a new Amazon Prime show is going to start at some point, we may bring this back to to talk about new things at that point. But uh, at least for now, we are going to conclude here. So to get into this discussion of personhood, we are going to start with a quote, and this quote comes from the Two Towers when Frodo and Sam are traveling with Gollum, and they're talking about tales and what type of tale they're in. And this is Sam talking.
1: Things done and over and made into part of the great tales are different. Why even Gollum might be good in a tale, better than he is to have by you anyway. And he used to like tales himself once, by his own account. I wonder if he thinks he's the hero or the villain.
0: So rude in a sense, but also understandable. Golems very interesting to read about and to analyze and discuss, but would we want golem traveling with us?
1: <laughs>
0: I don't know.
1: Yeah, and I think this, this is really interesting because, you know, talking about personhood within an epic story like Lord of the Rings, none of these characters are full people. They are all written to a certain extent. We don't get to see their entire lives. We don't get to see them, you know, outside of the narrative conceit that they're within. And so it's interesting in that we, in some ways, ascribe greater personhood to them than exists on the page. But in other ways, they're representing something that is less than a full person.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in the context of literature different characters are written in certain ways that they're supposed to show more or less personhood. Mm. And it's also interesting because Lord of the Rings is the only series that we actually talk about the films a fair amount mm-hmm. compared to just the books. Cause the, the books, there's so much there. There's so many details and we are, we know the, the movies so well and in very many ways, they're, they're done quite well. But as compared to something like Harry Potter, we almost never talk about the movies. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all the text. And so there are additional kind of levels or layers of, of personhood that you get when something's taken from a page and then actors portray them mm-hmm. and, and give, yeah, more face expressions or mannerisms and things like that.
1: Absolutely. And I also like... And I think it's particularly interesting to have it aimed from Sam at Golem, this idea of being mm-hmm. the hero or the villain. Sometimes being in a story not only makes a character more palatable, but more simplified. They're put into a role. And one of the great things about Golem is that he really is very ambiguous in those kinds of ways. But a fault in Sam's relationship with Golem is his treatment of him that is... Giving him roles that he's forcing to fit into, you know, even giving him a new name, Stinker and Slinker. It is in many ways not engaging with the complexities that exist within Gollum's character.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Sam distances himself from Gollum Mm -hmm. and in so doing diminishes how much personhood he sees in Gollum. Yeah. Yeah. Well,. Do you want to get into the character you're bringing today?
1: So I wanted to talk about Shelob.
0: Yes.
1: Shelob is also a... Also
0: someone I would rather see on the page than in real life. Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> don't I do even not get like spiders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think Shelob's interesting because Shelob is portrayed in many ways as actively inhuman. She takes the form of this extremely frightening creature and a monstrous version version of it. And she is the daughter of Ungoliant, who was considered the primordial spider, the first spider mm. of Middle-earth, in that she chose this form as a way of representing her hunger and her darkness.
0: Can you imagine choosing that as your, like, materialized form? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to be a gigantic spider.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Shelob oh. is the most monstrous of her children that we see in Middle-earth. She's interesting because she kind of straddles this line in many ways between a person and a non-person or a non-sentient being. For one, she's given a gender. She's called she throughout, and I think that's very interesting. But she's also never speaks in the books or on camera, though we know that she can. She makes a deal with Gollum to let him go as long as he brings her back things to eat. So we know that she is able to make reasoned choices and negotiate with others. She also can choose not to have alliances. Uh, One of the great descriptions of Shelob in the book is that Sauron basically jokes calling her his cat (laughs)
0: Oh, rude! (laughs) Sauron, not funny! Where
1: he, 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 like, gives her food to eat and she helps patrol this entrance into Mordor. And Tolkien also includes a line that says, but she owns him not, which apparently has been interpreted basically mean that she is not owned by him. She gives him no fealty. That she is not his pet in her perspective, even if she is in his.
0: She owns him, not, not. Yeah. He owns her, not. Tolkien. <laughs> Tolkien, what? <Yeah. laughs> I thought you were a great writer. <laughs> that seems like a pretty basic mistake. Come
1: on, subject-verb agreement needs to be very clear, <laughs> Tolkien, please. <laughs> oh. So yeah, even characters within the series having different kinds of perspectives on her, and mm-hmm. including ones that are infantilizing, making her into a pet into a less human, less full person.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting because they have one, oh, pet, that's so nice. Mm-hmm. And then you have, which would be much more close to our perspectives if we were in those circumstances like Sam and Frodo, just like, oh my God, this is a
1: monster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then you have someone like Gollum's like, we could be beneficial to each other. Yeah, we have we have a relationship.
1: Exactly, yeah. So yeah, I think there's really interesting kind of different levels there. And I also think it's funny that she's described as a cat because (laughs) even her as being described as not feeling like she is a pet to Sauron, that describes some cats too.
0: (laughs) Cats would also make a deal. Oh, you're going to go out and fetch the food for me? Okay, I'll just sit here.
1: It's essentially the deal we made with our cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Who's currently sitting on Chris's lap exactly. and looking super cute and nothing <laughs> like a spider.
1: <laughs> the other really interesting thing I found while I was doing some research on her is how some Tolkien scholars have also seen her as symbolic. And I think that for a character who is has less on-page nuance... Symbolism kind of becomes a good way of interpreting things, where she doesn't have lines that we hear her say, her intentions, or her motivations. And so you can kind of sense more of what she represents. And oftentimes, scholars have argued that she represents this kind of dangerous femininity. (laughs) So
0: dangerous.
1: (laughs) Where, you know, she she uses webs to tie her prey up.
0: Oh no. You have to... Brandish your sword at that dangerous femininity.
1: <laughs> she she has this all encompassing hunger. Oh,
0: God. She
1: just wants to devour her prey, and ultimately she's defeated when she is penetrated by Sam's oh, sword.
0: No, yeah. <laughs> these are all Never quotes say I, s- I those saw. <laughs> words to me again.
1: <laughs> so yeah, an interesting kind of element because she is a she and and we'd actually don't see her children
0: even in her name
1: in that's true <laughs> yeah <laughs> but she's still classified and, and and represented um as a feminine character throughout which I, I think is is fascinating too but it also leads to another another representation of she that i thought would be interesting to bring up so in 2017 a video game came out called middle earth shadow of war it's a sequel to the shadow of mordor game a few years prior and these games are not canon they take place in Mordor within the years between when Bilbo gets the ring and the ringwraiths go after Frodo. Mm. And it's all about what's going on in Mordor. And in the sequel game, Shelob is a very big character. And the designers of the game chose to have her in both her spider form and in the form of a beautiful seductress. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, of course. Of course.
1: Um, which gives her <laughs> the ability to... What else would to... she be? Yeah. <laughs> but it also leads to a different kind of dehumanizing. This kind of sexualization. Mm-hmm. Her her overarching story and motivation comes from the fact that she was at one point Sauron's lover and, and yeah. ally. And he betrayed her and now she hates him and wants to see him dead.
0: She found out he called her his pet yeah. and she wants to
1: kill him now. <laughs> but... You know, even that kind of casts her only as someone motivated by her.
0: Relation to a man. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, and, and her
0: only skill, she has to seduce to have power, right?
1: And she is extremely seductive to the player character who is male. Whispering things in the no, sultry voice, gross. and yeah, it's just it's 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 pretty bad. So yeah, I think it's it's very interesting, and and these games in particular have a real problem with personhood. We've talked a lot about orcs in the past in our episodes about race and things like mm-hmm. that, and these games are interesting because they give orcs personality and individuality, where they all have different specific fears and and motivations and desires and and things like that, and yet your character has a ring of power that they use to literally enslave orcs into an army that they build to challenge Sauron. And so the gameplay conceit... Are you
0: supposed to be a good character?
1: (laughs) I am shrugging right now. (laughs) You are actively fighting against Sauron, but one of the things that does come out is that the person who's helping you to do this domination is kind of building himself up to be the new Sauron. And... Either way, the mechanics of the game and the thing that you're playing is so tied up in this stealing of agency from orcs who have already lost so much agency in person who the way they're represented already in the series that mm-hmm. it's just uh, highly problematic, to say the least, <laughs> particularly when looking through this yes. angle. But yeah, I think that, that when I was thinking about Shelob and her representation, I felt like that dehumanization in a very different way that the games took place where they they tried to give her more character but in doing so objectified her in a lot of ways is fascinating and speaks to some of those symbolic interpretations that people had of her as this this kind of seductress type of archetype
0: Yeah, yeah yeah and speaks to i think some of the troubles that people run into when personhood isn't necessarily done amazingly or character development isn't done amazingly and then it's like oh well we gotta make them more interesting somehow and it's it's oftentimes i think can turn into fairly shallow ways of doing so
1: Mm -hmm. of of course there's also speaking to the constraints of. Capitalism and who what? has the rights to what. and What? This...
0: Capitalism <laughs> has a role to play in storytelling? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, when, when you are making a game, taking place in Middle Earth, but you don't have the rights to the movies, but you do have the rights to the...
0: Intellectual property of the books? Uh, uh, exactly.
1: <laughs> then you are losing a certain number of characters that you can draw on that people are familiar with. And so sometimes you just got to turn a giant spider into a sexy lady. <laughs> Gotta. You gotta.
0: You gotta. No
1: <laughs> other choice. Well, what plot element did you want to talk about today?
0: So I wanted to talk about the eagles or the great eagles. That okay. They're sometimes called. If, you, if you've mainly only watched the movies, you'll definitely remember scenes where they come to the rescue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they are actually quite important plot-wise, not necessarily in the quantity of times they are seen on screen but in what they actually do just to give a little background about them the great eagles are basically animals that have been taught language by the valar Hmm. particularly the king of the valar and were and this is a quote raised to a higher level though apparently tolkien said that they don't have a spirit or soul Hmm. And, you know, this all happened before even the elves were awoken. And so they are more ancient than the elves, but they don't exactly have the same personhood as the hmm. elves. Uh, because, yeah, they don't have this spirit or soul, which is called Fae. So they were then sent from Valinor to Middle-earth to basically keep an eye on Morgoth and other such beings like Sauron eventually who are just wreaking havoc they also interestingly possess the ability to see through all physical matter hmm. except for the darkness of Morgoth's evil pits yeah so they have like some special skills and abilities and they were taught language by the valar but as I was mentioning, they're not seen a ton in The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, but they do important things. In The Hobbit, rescued Thorin, Oakenshield, and, you know, the whole company when they were stuck in trees with, like, wargs and, and goblins setting fire to them. And Gwe here was the one who rescued Gandalf from the top of Isengard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He was also... Uh, He and other eagles aided in the battle at the Black Gate, Mm -hmm. and helped overthrow some of the Nazgul and their you know flying fell beasts that they were on, and they also fetched Frodo and Sam from Mount Doom after that blew up. So yeah, I was kind of thinking about them as really pivotal in these different moments. Like without them, the One Ring probably would have been in Goblin hands starting in the hobbit Mm -hmm. because they would have died in the burning trees the ring would have fallen and i'm pretty sure because of the rings like control and ability to bring attention to itself when it wants to someone would have picked it up and then it could have gone right to sauron pretty quick Mm -hmm. and then we have obviously gandalf would have it seems like died at isengard if here hadn't come, that means all of these different people would have died at Helm's Deep because he never would have been able to get there. Also, Frodo and Sam would have died yep. <laughs> after destroying the ring because of, you know, lava. And so without them, nothing would have worked.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: so... They're so important, at the same time, there's so little personhood given to them, and there's so little information that we know. There's one, maybe two, that are actually named.
1: Mm -hmm. I think I remember that they hate wargs a whole lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think they're very interesting in terms of how they help with the plot and move things forward as some might say it could be a little contrived sometimes like Mm. well the eagles can help (laughs) versus the eagles can't fly us into Mordor (laughs) I mean there's some the people Tolkien scholars have debated about that for a long time Sure. (laughs) like also it's pretty obvious if you see these eagles flying in (laughs) and then you have Nazgul you know so versus two little hobbits that Hopefully, no one sees. So, yeah. If if someone attacks the eagle, and you'd have to have somebody come too, because it's not like the eagle can hold on to the ring. Right. <laughs> and if the eagle falls, then the ring is just automatically in Mordor. So, yeah, it's it's not definitely not scenario the
1: stealthiest approach.
0: <laughs> no, not so much. So, yeah, yeah. I Just that they're interesting part to to talk about with personhood.
1: Yeah, I, I know that they've also come to represent, um, for a lot of Tolkien scholars, his concept of eucatastrophe as well. And so, if you're unfamiliar with eucatastrophe, this is a, a term that Tolkien basically made up <laughs> for the way that he wanted to tell his stories. And it is the opposite of a catastrophe. It is when things are essentially at their darkest, when things are about to end horribly all of a sudden goodness comes hmm. and a a miraculous turn of events leads to victory or hmm. survival or what have you. And so certainly in, in the Hobbit, when they're about to be burned out of these trees and all of a sudden eagles are there, hmm. they weren't summoned or anything. They just happened to be in the area. That's eucatastrophic.
0: Hmm.
1: catastrophe is its own, I think, really fascinating concept where it shows that you could possibly objectively call it contrived, but it's also intentional.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: this was something that he felt was an important part of the world that he wanted to build and the narrative he wanted to build was this, this miraculous turn from darkness to success. But in having the eagles be a tool of eucatastrophe they are, as you mentioned, stripped of their personhood. They are part of fate or destiny, or they happen to be there for the good of the protagonists and not for anything of their own volition or their own motivations or character arcs. So yeah, I think that's it's a really smart choice of, of what to look at because they, I think, are such a good example of this essential element to Tolkien's storytelling and In so doing, are a great example of the way that personhood can be stripped from characters by making them narrative devices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's like they help the people who have personhood that you care about survive Mm -hmm. and succeed, while they are still not very important in terms of character.
1: You never care about them. You're hopeful to see them coming because they're going to help those you do care about, but Mm -hmm. you, you never get a sense of attachment or engagement with who they are.
0: Really? I really love Eagle number three.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, it's a really, really uh, interesting plot point to bring up.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Well, what about your compelling question for me?
1: I was wondering what your thoughts are on the examples in Middle Earth where we see the environment given personhood.
0: So the first one that comes to mind is when they're in Fangorn Forest, mary mm-hmm. and Pippin and basically are swallowed up by these trees and treebeard's like you're not supposed to be waking. Stop it and go back to sleep. <laughs> and it's not super explained to to my recollection, but it seems like there's a piece of the forest that is angry because of what's happened to part of the forest. It's been cut down. There are orcs coming in and cutting them down and isn't necessarily uh, a lot of differentiation between the orcs versus obviously the hobbits. So it's attacking them in, in a very slow, sleepy, tree-like way.
1: Yeah, that scene in the books happens in Tom Bombadil's forest. It's old man Willow mm-hmm. who takes them and yes, he comes in right. and I sings them. I was
0: just going to say, I was like, wait, does this happen twice? <laughs> I remember <laughs> the old man Willow moment.
1: So in the movies, they transplanted yeah. it to Fangorn, but mm-hmm. it's essentially the same thing. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. this plant, that this tree that is aggressive against humanoid beings because of their...
0: Destruction of the environment. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if trees could take vengeance on us for destroying the planet?
1: I know, right? <laughs> Terrifying.
0: <laughs> Let's see, where else? Well, isn't even Goldberry a, like river spirit or something? She's or the related? daughter of the river. Oh, got it. The daughter of the river. Clearly, I'm just combining it and Avatar <laughs> Lesson. Lesnar- <laughs> There must be a spirit of the river, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So she is her own thing. Obviously, as we don't entirely know what Bombadil or her are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, are definitely given this kind of high regard in in relation to being able to make choices, being quote unquote good beings.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she's really interesting because she is Tom Bombadil's wife. And Tom Bombadil exists in this weird liminal state where he is clearly so tied in with the nature around him in his forest. And yet he seems so detached from the world in so many other ways mm-hmm. that he has this this really odd way of engaging with the world. And so Goldberry's presence as his wife is... It almost feels like it's it's... Abstract from the world, and so mm-hmm. her personhood—it feels almost more like a myth. And and I think it also sh- makes sense that Bombadil is always singing songs and telling stories, and that his way of interacting with things are so much more based in things like folklore and the ways that that the fae and and other types of spirits exist within those types of media, rather than traditional kind of epic stories like the rest of the Lord of the Rings. And of course, neither of us are Tolkien scholars ourselves. So <laughs> no. we may very well be far off. And if that's the case, please don't add us.
0: <laughs> we gave a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode <laughs> oh, we talk about the movies a lot because we know them better. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, was there any other you were think other environment personhood elements you were thinking about? I mean the Ents, of course,
1: and we've talked a lot about the Ents throughout the, our episodes on Lord of the Rings. But I think that for me the one thing that was interesting here, especially after talking about Tom Bombadil and these other elements, is how the Ents and Entwives are cultivators. Um, mm-hmm. Then wives are gardeners, and the Ents themselves saw that as too tied into one location. Mm-hmm. And yet is still so far removed from the idea of farming than humans typically think of when they talk about agriculture. And Sam is a gardener, and the Shire is a place of gardens, but it is cultivated land. Farmer Maggot has a farm. Mm-hmm. He's a farmer, so the Ents are even a more...
0: They somehow shepherd trees.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And I think that's a really interesting element where when you give the environment personhood, Mm -hmm. Tolkien is doing so in a way that is exemplifying much more basic kinds of development than widespread farming and the kinds of things that come with industrialization. For example, a lot of uh, indigenous communities in, certainly in North America, which is most of what I've studied, they will do practices like controlled burning that mm-hmm. help the growth of plants. Not, you know, manipulating soils. They are mm-hmm. not building a surplus in the same way. They're just ensuring that there is abundance to the mm-hmm. best of their ability through their cultivation practices. And that sounds very much like more like what the endwives are doing and still is nowhere near what the Hobbits are doing in the Shire.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it also makes me really interested because we've never seen any wives. They don't even remember what the Antwives look like. Mm-hmm. And so you know that they're out there somewhere. And so how many other sentient, environment-linked beings are there out there that we just don't know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's your compelling question for me?
0: Yeah, so I'm wondering what aspects of personhood you wonder about most in Middle-earth?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think that for me, a lot of the questions are kind of really big societal questions.
0: hmm
1: Like, in Rohan, they are a community based heavily around horses, but they're always represented as such. So do the people of Gondor see them as horse people? And does that take away their personhood in a way? Does that, mm-hmm. does that, you know, stereotype them essentially? And that's kind of really where it's coming from because hashtag I'm in grad school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so intercultural stereotyping and things like that is on my mind a lot. Yeah, those kinds of questions come up for me of, of how do either cultural differences or issues like gender or age come into play in the way people are actually thought of. One of the quotes I was thinking about was when Aragorn is looking for the hobbits and he meets Aomer and he says, they would just seem like children in your eyes. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think, you know, how are children seen? When are they given full personhood, if ever, in Middle-earth by their leaders? Is it when they are of age to do labor? Whether that be farming or martial labor or reproductive labor or whatever else it is.
0: Is it when they penetrate Shelob with their sword? <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I just because we we see such a, a relatively few number of characters, those characters start to exemplify communities and cultures in in large ways. And so that makes me have a lot more questions about the nuances of what it's actually like to live in those communities and mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons I like the return of the king because in the book Pippin is meeting with Baragond and and actually having relationships with commoners with people who are not a king or a royal family member in some way Mm-hmm. And and I think that gives you some illumination into that society that, that you don't get for a lot of the other ones.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's It's an interesting question, too. If the horse quality of Rohan was taken away, what differentiates Rohan's culture from Gondor's culture?
1: hmm yeah. What questions were you thinking of?
0: Well, I was thinking about... We were just talking about Ents. I was thinking about how they... Like, I wonder if forests have more personhood to Ents than they would mm-hmm. to other beings like hobbits or humans, dwarves, etc. Because ants are more tree-like, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I kind of wonder about if certain things have more personhood to certain races in Middle-earth than they do to other races. Because of how they're able to communicate or how they're able to feel or understand what other things are feeling and understanding you know Mm -hmm. i also was thinking about wargs and how in the books they actually can talk yeah and they made alliances with goblins at different periods of time and they were
1: one of the five armies weren't they
0: I think so. Well, they combined with the goblins, Mm. but I'm, so I don't know if they were counted as their own, but yeah, they, they combined with them so that they could both take over the lonely mountain together. Yeah. So yeah, they had, they had so much more agency and and sentience than they were portrayed in the movies. And that just makes me wonder a lot more about them and what they're doing with most of the time because we only know anything that's happening with them when yeah basically there's problems (laughs) (laughs) and you don't want them there but what are their aspirations what in what ways have maybe humans oppressed them or you know tried to kill them
1: that makes me think of a big question where is art in middle earth Because so much of culture and community is the creation of art. Art Mm -hmm. is one of the first archaeological evidence that you find about communities. And Mm -hmm. most of the art we see seems to be memorialization, which is a form of art or can be a form of art, but also has this political and historical role. And we see a lot of those kinds of things, but we, I, I guess outside of song And Mm -hmm. music and poetry, we don't see a lot. And so, do wargs have art Mm -hmm. to saying that they don't give, deny their personhood? Yeah. Those are the kinds of questions that come to my mind when I think about those, uh, Mm. the personhood of, of these groups that, even in the books, when they have a voice, are still so specifically and narrowly pictured.
0: Yeah. I love how even the goblins have songs Mm -hmm. i mean granted their songs were pretty nasty just singing about (laughs) ways to kill the dwarves Mm -hmm. but yeah that they create songs and have music and stuff as well i mean i think we see the most of it probably with the elves Mm -hmm. they have statues and the way that they create weapons and Mm -hmm. fashion clothes and and stuff like that It, it seems like that is there but i mean also the dwarves and how they Forge weapons and, and armor and things like that. So,
1: but yeah. where are all the paintings? And exactly. I actually, I think... Stories. I remember hearing once an interpretation of the difference between orcs and dwarves, particularly in The Hobbit, when they're both really kind of exemplified by digging underground and mining. Dwarves then have this artisanal creation to their weapons or anything else, where it is an art form in some ways, even mm-hmm. when they're building weapons or tools. And orcs just see it as industry and not as artistry. So, yeah, I wonder if, if there's this kind of, in Tolkien's view, these are not people or not persons um, because they lack that kind of artistry.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I'm just imagining someone like showing tree beard some paintings and he would be like, You've painted that on paper <laughs> and make like really mad.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> but why don't we move into our missed opportunities? What do you have?
1: Yeah, my missed opportunity is how fantasy generally and and Middle earth as one of the best examples of fantasy and, and one of the most lasting examples of world building in the fantasy genre allows in a really, really unique way for personhood outside of humanoid beings
0: mm-hmm. where
1: it can be a plant being like the mm-hmm. ents or wargs or a river spirit mm-hmm. there's all these other elements of personhood there and and the missed opportunity i see is just that even though we have this large cast of characters we don't get any point of view characters outside of a humanoid. Mm-hmm. We don't get a point of view of an eagle. We don't get a point of view of even an orc, but I think even beyond that, something like Shelob or something, something else that, that we know has sentience and sapience mm-hmm. and is able to speak and yet lives in the world in such a unique and fantastic way. I think that one of the great aspects of genre fiction is that it can help us to see existence in really fascinating, innovative ways. And so, yeah, hearing the POV of a character that has eight legs (laughs) and what that means for the way they interact with the world has a lot of opportunity there that is unfortunately not met in Tolkien's much more grand epic narrative.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now I'm also thinking of, if you had a POV eagle character, it just, like, being mischievous and purposefully, like, pooping over things <laughs> and it's flying <laughs> on. so funny. This is where my mind goes. Poor tree beard, (laughs) traumatized by art and eagles deciding who they want to poop
1: on. Really high level stuff. Well, other than the fact that we don't see any eagle poop, (laughs) what is your missed opportunity?
0: So mine is that sentience is not enough in Tolkien's world Hmm. because the eagles don't have faith like they don't have this soul slash spirit and when they're talking to Treebeard and he has that song right about the creatures of middle earth and lists four free peoples which are elves and dwarves and, and humans then after singing a little bit about them then lists all of these different like animals And, you know, he's like, ah, maybe I should add a verse for hobbits, which is great and cute and Mm. I love it. But there's nothing in between Mm. the rabbits and the snake and this and the humans and the elves and such. We know that there are all of these other beings that are sentient and even other beings that talk. Yeah. I just think that, yeah, it's, it's a missed opportunity that it's mainly humanoid characters and and beings that have this soul and the spirit and more personhood and then there's everything else mm. also that maybe some creatures just are semi-evil or like quote-unquote dark creatures mm. you know what does that mean in, in in terms of their personhood and some of those things and obviously not orcs which we've talked about to a great extent throughout the podcast, but Smog, he stands alone. A Balrog, in in Moria, he stands alone. Shelob, she's alone. You know, there's all of these other beings that you know have either great power that definitely have sentience, and they're just alone. Yeah, is part of that aloneness a contributing factor to stripping away of of personhood, or is it because that they already had stripped away personhood that Tolkien didn't feel any need to give mm. them any relationships? So yeah, I, I just would have really appreciated more complexity to different creatures that we, we find out about. Um, we know a little bit about them to know that they're not just like a fish swimming in the forbidden pool or whatever.
1: Totally, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Well... Instead of our normal takeaways, since this is our last one that we're doing at least for quite a while. On Lord of the Rings. um, Yeah, (laughs) on Lord of the Rings, yes. What are your takeaways from our time with Lord of the Rings as one of our properties?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the things that really come to mind for me are, are one, how Lord of the Rings really set the stage for so many of the archetypes that we think about when we think about genre fiction and fantasy in particular, and and how in some good ways and some bad ways that has led to very long lasting conventions that have been maintained and, and can often be looked back on through Lord of the Rings. But the things that really stand out are the ways in which there is surprise and nuance and compelling aspects to it that go far beyond Yeah, this epic tale that is at the heart of the story. That really brings to mind a conversation that we've had a number of times, which is this difference in Tolkien's writing between the great and the good. The books feature both. They feature great characters, like and and by great I mean socially great and epically great uh, kings, tyrants, Characters like Gandalf and Saruman and uh, Aragorn and Sauron—these you know, these... leaders
0: that could have the great next to their name—exactly,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those exist, and this this clash between different states and peoples is a great, in the same kind of way, like wide-ranging great war in the same way that World War One was considered the great war because it's not good, but It was just so large and so important for everything about society at the time. And yet, we also spend these really quiet moments with characters, in particular characters like the Hobbits. Mm -hmm. I think that the inclusion of the Hobbits helps to do that. It helps to humanize these stories where we see Merry and Pippin go off to Rohan and Gondor and... Neither of them is going to be a great warrior, but they can both do good and be there to see and influence things for the better through basic compassion and determination. And we see Sam there with Frodo, no matter what, and even when he thinks Frodo dies, going to continue his, his master's and his friend's mission. Yeah, I think that even looking at the structure of the books, the way that in Two Towers and Return of the King, for the most part, it's split in half between the great deeds and the deeds of the hobbits. And I just think that within this shell of giant battles and epic stories is these really human moments that have become for me, especially through these conversations, the most meaningful aspects of Middle-earth and of Tolkien's writings and the movies. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty good.
0: <laughs> Conclusion, it's pretty good.
1: <laughs> what about you? What's your, your takeaway?
0: Yeah, I think for me, it's... Lord of the Rings is a really funny beast <laughs> because there's some things that... When we look at it, we're like, oof, this wasn't done well. <laughs> like, race or gender, for mm-hmm. example. I mean, there are some elements that aren't necessarily done terribly. You know, in those episodes, we didn't only have negative things to say necessarily. Yeah. But still, there there's a lot of shortcomings for certain things that Lord of the Rings does. And so you have those things that you're like... We can really see how this was written in the 30s and 40s, right? Some of the elements can really kind of serve as a marker in time for how things were written or done. Not that things aren't still done Mm -hmm. those ways, for sure. But then you have other elements that all of this time has passed and it's still wonderful. You know, it still has really interesting aspects or complexities or nuances. And it has important messages. Like, yeah, there is all of the great fighters and everything, but the ones that in the end really matter. It's these two little hobbits. And these beautiful thoughts of it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance and Mm -hmm. and that whole interchange between Frodo and and Gandalf and how Frodo really changes over time from that initial attitude to believing in Gollum to then in the end being opposed to any war to not ...wanting even something bad to happen to Saruman... ...who had caused Mm -hmm. so many problems and so much suffering. And you really get to see that progression... ...in a really beautiful way. And in some ways... ...yeah, just things like between Frodo and Sam... ...that are just different to how nowadays... ...people usually uh, write and portray... two male friend characters... Mm. ...that aren't romantically involved... And so it's just like, in some ways, there's these really significant, great things that have not only just like held up, but have also, in some ways, do some things better than current day things do, as things are so, I want to (laughs) say (laughs) blockbusterized, you know. And so, yeah, I think through this podcast, it's really draw out some of those lines in kind of darker ink of just how different it is compared to some other series that we know and love
1: absolutely yeah well that's gonna wrap it up for our last episode on lord of the rings Mm
0: -hmm.
1: what will we be discussing next week when we head into the hunger games
0: so we're gonna look at the hunger games and the ballad of songbirds and snakes Through the theme of greed.
1: Greed in The Hunger Games next week. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find the links to our social media and our website in the episode description, or you can send us an email at geekbetween at gmail.com. You can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash lines to get access to all sorts of fun extra content and to help keep the show sustainable. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor-Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek Geek out!